Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's better to be here than in the emergency room. <clears throat> I do want to start this morning with a thank you. Uh, we were kind of inundated with calls and texts last week, both from our family here and in Yorba Linda, and it was uh, humbling and overwhelming, and I just want to say thank you to all of you for the encouragement and the prayers, especially. I know you've had a lot of questions. I just... Um, just to, to be vulnerable with you for a little bit this morning, uh, when Robin was pregnant with Paisley, um, I went into the hospital with a virus that had attacked my heart, something called viral myocarditis. It's not an ongoing issue, it's a thing you have, uh, but it did do damage to my heart and my heart is a little weakened and I'm on some heart medication. So all that just to say, when I go to the emergency room, things tend to get dramatic quickly because they have to make sure it's not my heart. And so... Went in last Sunday morning with what turned out to be a bad case of vertigo, but things got real dramatic when we got there, and they even um, called a code stroke when I got there and scared the tar out of Robin and Paisley. And so just so you guys know, little things for me turn into big things real quickly. I apologize for the drama, but that's the way things go with my life. I'm thankful for the encouragement. I'm fine. Um, if things start spinning, I'll just sit down and finish my sermon that way. Uh, I do want to say a special thank you to uh, Michael, too, for um, eloquently and powerfully proclaiming the goodness of our Savior on a very short notice last week. So, Michael, thank you. I appreciate that very much. Over the next few lessons, we're going to be looking in the book of Hebrews. And so I encourage you this morning to take out your Bibles, turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll explain what we're going to do in just a second. We've got some visitors here this morning. I want you to know you are a very honored guest. We're so glad that you are here with us this morning. I don't know what brought you here, but I hope you're encouraged by your time with us this morning. And I hope you'll take a few minutes after the service is over to get to know us a little bit better so we can find out how we might be able to serve you on your path towards a deeper relationship with God. For everyone who might be watching online this morning, thank you for joining us. And likewise for you, we, uh, we pray that you are encouraged by this and we hope that you will use the comment section in whatever live feed you're watching to help interact with us and let us know how we can be of service to you as well. So we're going to start in Hebrews 12 this morning, and this is what we're going to do. I'm going to break a passage from Hebrews 12 down into two lessons. One will come this morning. Next week, as Michael already talked about, we have our youth rally, and so we've got a family worship plan next Sunday morning on the theme of our youth rally, which is going to be talking about Peter and his relationship with God. Michael already did an excellent job setting that foundation last week. We're going to continue that discussion next week. The week after, we'll come back and finish... The second part of this lesson from Hebrews chapter 12, then we're going to be on the road for a little bit. When we come back, then we're going to go backwards into Hebrews chapter 10. I know it's a weird way of doing things to work backwards in the book of Hebrews, but there's a method to my madness. Hopefully it will make sense to you. Uh, I want to explore more deeply the idea of the church. And I don't mean the church as an organization. I mean the church as a body. I don't mean the church as... Um, a, a, a structure, I mean the church as a family. And I want us to think about that and what God is doing in us and through us as we gather together, as we assemble together. So we're going to start that conversation in Hebrews chapter 12, and I hope you'll follow along. Uh, before we even get to Hebrews chapter 12, in case you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews itself, it's one of those 
rare letters where we're not exactly sure who the author is. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the church from a very early time valued the message of the book of Hebrews and considered it to be a part of the canon, that is, inspired scripture from God. It's a powerful message, maybe even delivered as a sermon the first time it was given, to a group of early Christians who were struggling in their trust in Jesus as Savior. And the author of Hebrews is trying to establish something, and it's very clear as you read throughout the letter. What he's trying to establish, I think, is best summarized in this passage from Hebrews chapter 6. In verses 6 and 7, the Hebrew author writes, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent. And there's two words I want you to think about as you think about the book of Hebrews. Excellent and better. Better being the key word. It's more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is Better. It's a better covenant than what we had previously received, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We have received in Jesus a covenant better than the first. The Hebrew author does not take a low view of the law that was given to the children of Israel through Moses. He's not talking about the fact that the law of Moses is bad. He's not establishing that the covenant God gave to the children of Israel on Sinai was bad. He's just saying that what comes through Christ is that much better. He, like Paul, has a high view of the law. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 7? So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law was good, but what Jesus does is better. And so he's reminding this group of people how much better the covenant is in Jesus, how much better the relationship we have through God or in God through Jesus, because this group of early Christians was losing their trust in Jesus and they were giving up on their faith. And so this whole letter is a letter of encouragement to be steadfast and strong and immovable. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So that brings us to Hebrews chapter 12. Kind of a summary of everything he's talked about in the book, and it's probably unfair to start here, but I think the message will be clear regardless of whether you're familiar with the whole letter of Hebrews or not. Let's start in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. He writes, for you have not come. Okay, let me stop there. This is a passage about two places, two different mountaintops. And we find ourselves on one of these two different mountaintops. And so what he's doing is he's establishing the difference between these two locations, these two different mountaintops. The Israelites at Sinai found themselves on one mountaintop. Today, we in Christ find ourselves on a different kind of mountaintop. We are not where Israel once was. We are somewhere different, and as you can imagine, we are somewhere, according to the Hebrew authors, better. Okay? So where are we not? That is the first thing we're going to establish this morning. Let's talk about where we are not. Okay, he says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble with fear. This is where we have not come. And this is what we have to establish first, is this understanding of where we are not when we assemble together as God's people. We are not in that place of fear and terror that the Israelites once found themselves in. So where is the author of Hebrews getting this imagery from? 
Well, let's go back to the book of Exodus. And this will be familiar because we spent a few weeks in and around this passage not too long ago, so hopefully the imagery is still fresh in your minds. But let's look at Exodus chapter 19, because this is where the Hebrew of, the author of Hebrews wants us to go. Exodus chapter 19. And if you'll follow along with me, starting in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. This is the mountain of Sinai. They encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, You tell the people of Israel, You yourselves, this is God speaking to Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, I want you to pause for a minute in your own mind. Remembering the scene as it unfolds in the early part of Exodus, remembering the imagery of God in those ten plagues that he uh, decimates Israel, or excuse me, Egypt with as he's bringing Israel out of Egyptian bondage, what words would you use to describe that scene? What imagery would you use to describe the Exodus as it unfolds and the plagues as they befall Egypt? And then I want you to contrast whatever you've got in your own mind with the imagery of God here and the language of God. Verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What a beautiful way of describing what happened in the Exodus. This is God's own language. This is how he describes the Exodus story. I bore you on eagles' wings, Israel, and I brought you to myself. He's reminding them of what he did. In verse 5 he goes on, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God's got a message for Israel. I want to establish a covenant with you. We talked about this weeks ago, if you remember, and I encourage you to think about this almost like a marriage ceremony. God is proposing to Israel, and Israel in return is accepting his proposal, right? They're saying, I do. And so the relationship now has to be consummated. They have to, they have to draw together in marriage. This covenant has to be enacted some way, so how, somehow. And so, Moses is going to take these words down the mountain. He's going to tell the Israelites what God is expecting from them. And they're going to agree to the terms of his covenant. And then he's going to invite them to the mountain so that the marriage ceremony, if you will, can take place. Where they can become one and united in this covenant together. And so we pick up in verse 7. And this is what we read. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them before them these words of the Lord that he had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken... We will do. We accept what he's saying and we will be obedient to what he's asked us to do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Remember Moses acting as an intermediary. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. Go and get them prepared for my coming to them on the mountain. On the third day, I'm going to come to them on the mountain and they must be prepared. Make them 
holy because they're going to be in my presence. They can't come to me as they are. They have to be sanctified and made holy so they can find themselves in my presence. And all this is going to happen on the third day. So prepare them for that. And you will set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. This is what the Hebrew author is referring to, that fear that was embedded in them not to go near the mountain where God was. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. If you touch the mountain, what's going to happen? You're going to pay with your life. God's serious about the limits that he has set here and them understanding the holiness of God as he comes down amongst them. No hand shall touch him, he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Do everything that I'm telling you to do to consecrate yourselves so that when the third day comes, you are prepared to meet God on the mountain. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, so the third day is here, and you can imagine all of the anxiety building up inside them as they're getting prepared to go meet God on the mountain, and what happens? It says there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. God's presence is showing up on the mountain and the people are terrified by what they're seeing. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. The people don't go on the mountain, they stop at the foot of the mountain. And we're going to talk about all this in just a minute, but I want you to pay attention to that detail. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled. Earthquakes, lightnings, smoke, thunder. Is this a welcoming scene? If you are in Israel's number at that time, and you're approaching the mountain, are you thinking, that's where I want to go, where all that's unfolding? No. This is a terrifying scene unfolding in front of them, and they're intimidated by what they are seeing. And that's not the end of it. Verse 19, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. It's not just one trumpet blast, but this continual blast that's growing and reverberating. The whole scene is terrifying. This is the picture that's being painted for us. And the Hebrew author wants us to have this scene in our minds as he talks about where we are today. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, We have set boundaries. The people can't come up. Don't let them come up. It's this whole scene where Israel's terrified and they can't get near to God. And what I want you to think about is, what is exactly is God trying to teach Israel in this moment? And how appropriate was Israel's reaction to the scene? So, if you go back to verse 13, I want you to notice something. In verse 13, I'm going to read from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And this is in alignment with most every popular English translation today. It will read something like this. 
No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. This is God giving direction to Moses regarding Israel approaching the mountain. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And then this is the important part. When the trumpet sounds a long blast. So when the trumpet sounds on the third day and you approach God, this is what the ESV says. They shall come up to the mountain. Now that seems to be in alignment with what we see unfold in the rest of the story, right? Moses has set boundaries. The children of Israel come up to the foot of the mountain, but they don't do what? They don't go up on the mountain because God has told them not to. At least that's the way the ESV reads. But I want to show you something. If you read instead from the New Revised Standard Version, I'd be surprised if many of you are very familiar with this, but if you read from this version, it reads something totally different. And this is more in alignment with what the original Hebrew text is actually communicating. It says this, No hand shall touch them, they shall be stoned or shot with arrows, whether animal or human being, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they may, what does it say? Go up on the mountain. That's a very different thing, isn't it? What is happening here? Is God inviting Israel to join him on the mountain? Or is God telling them, you don't get to come up on the mountain, you stay at the foot of the mountain because you'll die if you come up? Depending on which translation you're reading, two very different things are happening here. Why is it then that so many of our popular English translations have something different than this? Why do they indicate that what God's command was was to just come up to the foot of the mountain and not go any further? Well, because they're trying to harmonize what happens in the rest of the story. What we see unfold is not Israel on the third day going up on the mountain with Moses. We see them taking their stand at the foot of the mountain. They're terrified to go any further because God's presence is so intimidating. The question is, is that what God wanted them to do or not? Now, go over to Exodus chapter 20. What happens in Exodus 20, so all this unfolds in chapter 19... God then invites Moses on the mountain, and God begins to give Moses the Ten Commandments. But you've got this little break in verses 18 through 21, which was already read for us this morning, where it's a flashback to chapter 19. And he's reiterating the fear of Israel and what unfolded here in this moment. And listen to what this says now in Exodus chapter 20. Okay, let's look back at what happened in chapter 19. And here's a little more information. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, all of these intimidating things, the people were, what? Afraid. They're terrified by the presence of God and they trembled and they stood far off. They were not approaching the presence of God. They were terrified to go near the presence of God. And what's more, listen to the interaction they have with Moses then. It says, They said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They are so intimidated by the presence of God, that they don't want anything to do with his presence. They are happy to let Moses serve as an intermediary, because they're afraid of God. And so Moses, we'll listen to you, that's fine, but please don't let God talk to us. And they're standing far off, terrified of the presence of God. Moses said to the people, now listen to this, do not fear. They're afraid, but Moses is saying, you're misreading the scene. God is not coming to you in this way so that you're terrified. Listen to what he says, for God has come to do what? To test you. 
Now, all throughout the book of Exodus, we see God testing the Israelites. He tests them with water. He tests them with food. He's testing them to see whether they are going to trust in him. And Moses is saying, what's happening now, Israel, is another test. God wants to see the same thing. Do you trust him or not? And the clear indication is here, they do not trust him. They are still living in fear of God. But Moses says something that's kind of confusing. He says, don't fear, for God has come to test you, so that the fear of him may be before you. Don't be afraid, God wants you to be afraid. Is that really what Moses is trying to indicate here? Or do our kind of modern understandings of the word, of the word fear get in the way of us understanding what it is that God really wants from Israel here? Does God want Israel to be so terrified of him that they don't dare draw near. The people stood far off. This is the result. The people stood far off. And remember, this is all embedded in Hebrews chapter 12. He wants us to think critically about this experience Israel had with God. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. If you go back to what we read just a few minutes ago in Exodus 19, what did God want from Israel? That they would become a kingdom of priests. That language that he uses, God's possession, his holy nation, the kingdom of priests, Peter uses that in his epistle to describe the church today, right? That we're all priests. But Israel didn't become a kingdom of priests. They became a kingdom led by priests. And there became these layers of separation between them and God. And when God's presence dwelt among them, through the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and then in the temple, it dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And anybody could just make an appointment and go in and check it out, right? No, who could enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest and him only once a year. So there's this separation. You know, if you're a woman, you can only get so far. If you're a Jewish man, you can get a little further. If you're a priest, you can get a little further. If you're the high priest, you can enter into the Holy of Holies. But there's always some layer of separation between you and your God. And all that begins here in Exodus 19 and 20. And the Hebrew author is casting our minds back to that story. So the question we need to ask is this. Did God want Israel? To be afraid and stay away. Is he happy with what they've done here? That aside in chapter 20 where he says, okay, now remember, this is what happened. They were terrified. They didn't want God to speak to them. They sent Moses on their behalf and they stood far off. Is that what God wanted from them? For them to be afraid and stay away? Or he, did he want them to have a different kind of fear? The kind of fear that would cause them to draw near to him. And you might be asking yourself, what, that doesn't even make any sense. What kind of fear makes you draw near to the thing that you're in fear of? Well, again, I would challenge our way of thinking about fear. I'll give you a couple examples in Scripture. Okay, Genesis chapter 3, you remember this story. Adam and Eve in the garden. And they're tempted by the serpent. And they give in to that temptation. No, God did not say you will die. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So this is after they have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is after they have broken the commandment from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. It sounds a lot like what Israel is doing in Exodus 19 and 20, doesn't it? They're so afraid of God's presence, they want to be removed from it. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, what? Afraid. 
I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is one kind of fear. This is one option we have in front of us. That the fear of the Lord just means that you're afraid of God. But you're, if you're only ever afraid of God, are you ever bound to draw near to God? No. You're going to be like Israel. You're going to be stuck at the foot of that mountain forever where I just need an intermediary because I'm afraid of the presence of God and don't let me get any closer, please. You're going to be like Adam and Eve, so overwhelmed by our own brokenness that the only reaction to the goodness and greatness of God is that we end up hiding from Him. And maybe you feel like that this morning. Maybe you're in that place this morning where your own brokenness and sinfulness is so overwhelming to you that you can't imagine a God so good that He would draw you to Himself. But the Hebrew author is trying to get us off the foot of that mountain to a different mountaintop. Here's another story. Genesis chapter 22. Turn over there with me if you would. Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, if you'll pay attention, so many stories in Scripture connect to each other. Here you've got another child of God approaching a mountain on the third day. And fear, again, comes into play in this story. God has asked Abraham to do the unthinkable. So on the third day, verse 4, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand and the fire and the knife. And they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And tell me, fathers, if you would be able to take a step further if your child had asked you that question. But Abraham does. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know... That you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is a different kind of fear, isn't it? Abraham is illustrated to God that he fears God, but what did that fear prompt Abraham to do? To stop at the foot of the mountain in fear or to proceed in obedience? And I think that's the lesson for us here. This is what the Hebrew author is trying to get us to think about, regardless of whether Israel was called to the top of the mountain and they disobeyed out of fear, or whether they stopped because God wanted them to, and they were actually doing what He wanted, whatever, the, whatever it is, they're terrified and they don't want to approach God. And this is a problem. And the Hebrew author is telling us we need to get away from that problem. Christ has brought us to a different mountaintop. It is possible to be afraid of God and never really learn to fear Him. 
And for Israel, I think they were stuck in that place where they were frozen by terror. But Abraham shows us a different path forward. That when you trust in God, you fear Him, but because you fear Him, you are drawn nearer to Him, trusting in who He is and His character. God wants us to fear Him in a way that leads us to trust and obedience, not terror and withdrawal. And so, we get to Hebrews chapter 12 again, and we firmly understand now where we are not. We are not at the foot of Mount Sinai, trembling in fear. We are not living in terror of our God. We are not so afraid of the presence of God that we refuse to take another step closer. We are not hiding in the garden like Adam and Eve. We are not paralyzed by that kind of fear. We find ourselves somewhere completely different. We're not on Sinai anymore. So where are we? You have come to Mount Zion, a different mountain. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And when we get back together in a couple weeks, and we open this passage up, we're going to talk about this imagery. Now that we know where we're not, how do we come to terms with where we are? We are in the presence of God, and that means something totally different for us than it meant for Israel. Where are you this morning? What mountaintop do you find yourself on? Are you still paralyzed by fear? Do you have a fear for God that means that you love Him and respect Him so deeply that you trust in Him fully and so you're not afraid anymore to draw near? Or are you still so afraid of who He is and His judgment that you refuse to take a step closer? I'm pleading with you this morning to take a step closer to your God. And the church stands to serve you in whatever way we can as you begin that journey of faith. Would our elders please uh, stand up for just a second, the elders that are here this morning. I just want everybody to know in case you're visiting. These are our shepherds. These are men. We have more, <laughs> I promise. Uh, some of them are sick. Some of them are out doing some other things. Uh, but, uh, but Bruce and Glenn are here this morning. I just want you to know we're going to stand and sing a song in just a minute. Uh, I know it's intimidating if I ask you to come forward, actually march down that aisle and, and talk in front of people. You guys can sit down if you want. Thank you. But there are men here who stand to serve. Uh, every one of us does. But these are our shepherds. And if there's something they can do for you this morning, they would love nothing more than to have the opportunity to do that. And so if you need prayer, if you need encouragement, if you would like to study, whatever it is that we can do to serve you, please seek out one of these men and let them know about it. Let's stand. Let's sing together, and as we do that, I hope you will think about the mountain that we find ourselves on today in the presence of our God, singing not with fear, but with confidence. Let's sing together. Lord,